Well, good morning. Oh. First sermon back, you guys have been trucking through an amazing book, all these glories of God and salvation, and Paul assigns me this text, <laughs> the rebellion of Israel and the worship of the golden calf, uh, full of plagues and destruction. Um, what a word. In seriousness, um, it feels so good. It is so good to be back with my family, with our family. We've heard that from a lot of you, reciprocated, and it just we feel the same way. I think the first Sunday back, I've been back a few weeks, as most of you know, I was hugging everybody. I just, I'm a hugger, but I just couldn't help myself. It's just, this is, hey, we've missed our family. Um, and for those of you that aren't yet part of the family, as Sarah so eloquently and sincerely said, we just welcome you. Just consider yourself part of this, and um, we want you to feel the love of Christ and know how welcome you are. But uh, thank you. I, I We'll be short because I could go on forever, but um, really grateful for the sabbatical that you gave to me and my family. Um, just how we were able to rest, to get away, to have an adventure, to be here and not be doing what I normally do, to have some perspective. Thank you. Thank you so much for working a lot of you extra and overtime and blocking for me, my staff, and elder candidates um, in so many ways. So it's really good to be back, even, even, even if it is with a, the golden calf text. So on the surface, this text, this story seems like it's a story about God's people breaking his laws. And it is about that, but it's really um, more profoundly a story about God's people breaking God's heart. The Jesus Storybook Bible says, one of my favorite books, says this. It says, now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. In other words, they show you the fabric of the universe. It's like physics, but for living. That's how things work, right? But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one Big story, the story of how God loves his children and came to rescue them. Um, what directly, as Paul and others have so well said as they filled this pulpit in weeks past, what directly precedes in Exodus 20, the first giving of the Ten Commandments, there's a second giving in Deuteronomy, which means second law, which means there's a sort of recounting of the law, Deuteronomy 5. But in Exodus 20, the first time the Ten Commandments are given, what directly, as Paul said, precedes the Ten, the Ten Commandments. In short, it it's really is in short. It's a brief, almost one-verse story of God making for himself a people that he could love and that could love him and saving them. Um, so, and this is it. In Exodus 20, verse 1, just one verse, right before the giving of the law, he says, Moses says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. In other words, you're mine. I have covenanted to be your God and you, my people, and I've rescued you. Before you start obeying, you're mine. That's your identity. In light of being my children, live according to these laws and you will live well. It's how things work. It's the fabric of the universe. And because it tells us God's character and he made all things. It's after that, starting in verse three, that the rules begin. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me, and so on. Um, the rules, think about them this way. The rules are 
uh, rules of a father telling his children, here are the keys to life. Don't run in the street. Eat your vegetables. All these things, kids, are because of their ignorance, they're thinking, you hate me. I can't run anywhere I want. I have to eat vegetables. Why can't I eat, you know, pudding, jello pudding snacks and cake all the time? Because you would die. Um, so yes, this chapter is about the Israelites behaving badly and breaking God's laws with astonishing speed. But more deeply, it's about God's people rejecting him and breaking his heart. And that explains the anger that we see. God gets furious. Anger is almost always a surface emotion. There's something deeper, almost always there's something deeper driving the anger. And in this case, it's God's wounding because he truly loves these people that he's made for himself and rescued. It's a broken heart. That's why God's acting this way in his righteous anger. And he does get furious, red hot angry. And that's what the Hebrew word means here. It means red hot angry. But it comes from, I don't want you to miss this before we start, it comes from a place of love. This is the way that love acts when it sees the beloved going and doing something that's self-destructive. Um, it's a way that a father whose children, it, it, this is a father whose children have left home and wished him dead. Um, and it's a husband whose wife has just given herself to another lover. That's what we're seeing here. Um, fury in both cases is the appropriate response. It's the response of a father with a broken heart and of a faithful lover who's been betrayed. So a husband who didn't get furious walking in on his wife being unfaithful with another man uh, wouldn't be loving. He'd just be a plain, terrible husband. Um, love is jealous. And, and God says, I am a jealous God. But it is jealous uh, not of people, not of the beloved, but for the beloved, for their welfare. You see, and that's what we're seeing here. Similarly, a father who did not get furious watching his children uh, not only run on the street, but if you think of an older child ruining his or her body uh, with, with, set, with profligate sex, uh, selling, selling his or her body on the street, or with a meth addiction, a father who didn't get furious at that for the sake of, for that child, would be a terrible father because unloving. That's what love does. So God's um, a jealous husband because he's love. That's why the first command is, you shall have no other gods before me. He's saying, no other lovers. No competing lovers. I need to be first. It's how, it's how life works. It's how this works, and it's how the rest of your life will work. It's how these rules will make sense. Um, in other words, just I've said with more words what the Jesus Storybook Bible says so well and so briefly. Um, this whole book is a book about relationship not rules. The rules serve the love relationship. It's how relationships work. When you say, hey, let's get married, live however you please. It's going to be great. It's not what we do. Why do we take vows at the altar? Because this is how love works best. In exclusive union with one another, covenanting to each other. It's the guidelines that allow the game to make sense. It's the, gu- it's, the, it's the lines on the road that allow the driving to be safe and for you to be able to get to a... To, from A to point B without destroying your car, okay, and, and killing other people and yourself. Um, so that's why Jesus, when he's approached and, and um, the, they're testing him and they say, what's the greatest law? He says, the, the greatest law is that the Lord your God is one and you shall love the Lord your God with everything you have. Now, why does he say that? Because the first command here in the Ten Commandments isn't that. Because it is, you shall have no other gods before me. We've just seen, though, he's understanding the heart of that law. It's that God wants us 
body and soul. He made us for himself, all of us, okay? He has entered into, at ultimate cost to himself, this love relationship. He's rescued us. He's rescued Israel out of slavery. Um, And all the other, Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on this. They only make relationship when you understand that this thing is about relationship. That's the only way the rules, the rules hang on the love relationship that God wants with his people, okay? Um, And God's a good father who knows that our following these laws lead to flourishing. Um, So live how you want and you'll die, just like with our kids, right? And this has been the story. This isn't a new thing. It's a renewed thing. This was the exact same thing um, in Genesis 3. God said, here's one law. Now there are many because rebellion and sin have grown. But there was one law and just do this, obey me, and you can live total freedom. You will enjoy everything I've made for you and you'll reign and you'll prosper. They broke that. And what happened when they broke that is they broke relationship. Um, And we see that again with Israel. It's a replaying of the Eden event. God's going, okay, I'm gonna remake everything through you, Israel. Here's a law, live by it and you'll prosper. And it'll bless the nations. And with astonishing celerity or speed, they break the law. And they break God's heart. So um, four observations this morning from the text. This story, as so many that have filled this pulpit have said in the past weeks, this is our history as well as Israel's. It's our family history because we, who by faith have looked to Christ, have been grafted in to the, to the family of God, whatever, whatever our ethnicity. Um, so four truths that were true of Israel on the Sinai Peninsula 3,400 years ago, and they're true of us today in, here in Houston, Texas. And just to show you that I'm not just extrapolating, um, that that's, that's always true when we read in the Old Testament things, that, that that's our family history. We take them forward to the prism of Christ and we apply them. Paul does that directly for us in 1 Corinthians 10, so we don't have to guess. He, he refers specifically to this text, Exodus 32, um, in 1 Corinthians 10, in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Do not think for a second that really it's like God wasn't with them or there is much of a disconnect between us and them. He's saying here something astonishing. Jesus himself was the one leading them. Jesus himself was the one giving them water to quench their thirst in the desert and his very self. As they trusted in God's promises, he was the one that was with them. Therefore, when they disobeyed, and, and they told themselves over and over, we are God's people, we will keep your promises. But what does Paul say? Nevertheless, so this speaks straight to us as a church. We who say we are, our, we are gods in Christ. Jesus is with us, okay? We will do what you command. Nevertheless, Paul says, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. In the wilderness. They were God's people. They were with Christ and he with them. He gave himself to them and yet they died in the desert because of unbelief. Paul is saying in Zero uncertain terms. Be warned. Idolatry will destroy you. You can say with lips, I am God's. I am Christ's. But if your life tells a different story, your allegiances, your loves, what identifies you, what you spend your time and your energy and your focus on, if it's something that is not the living God, you need to be warned here because you too will die in the desert just like they did. Um, Paul says this, now these things took place as examples for us that we 
might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, here it is, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So four things, um, as we're sobered here, coming into this text, four brief things this morning. Number one, we worship what we can weigh. I'm not exactly sure why I chose that word weigh, except for alliterative purposes, but basically what we can handle, what we can feel, or you could say we worship what we can see. And Israel did as well here, it's very, it's very clear. What did they do? They made something they could see. Even though God was on the mountain doing his thing with Moses, they couldn't wait. And they had to see something and worship that and call it Yahweh. That's what they do in the text. Um, they, they make it out of gold. Aaron does specifically. They tell him to and he does it. Um, where did the gold uh, for the idol come from that Aaron crafted? It came from the people. It came from their ears. It came from their arms. From gold jewelry. And they had a lot of it. And there were probably two to three million possibly plus people in the wilderness. And where did that gold come from? Where did that jewelry come from? came from Egypt. It came from Egypt because part of the miracle was that these slaves were able to plunder the master, the master race. They were able to plunder the ones who had kept them in captivity and God gave them favor and they just took this gold from the Egyptians and walked out of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry land. Um, This was a sign of God's salvation with a mighty hand of his people. The fact that they plundered their captors and they are using this very thing to slap God in the face and to reject him, and to break his heart. Um, well, again, to take it a step farther, what was the gold to be used for? Certainly not for an idol in God's mind. What was, it, what was it to be used for? Not only to plunder the Egyptians, yay God, you're amazing, this is an act of you, only you could do this, but what in the wilderness, and just to, well, we've already seen some of it, we actually skipped that text, but all throughout the next uh, Leviticus and some of Numbers and then the previous chapters, what was the gold to be used for, to craft, for God worship? A tabernacle, a tabernacle, a place of worship. It was meant to be a, a way for God to worship, for God's people to worship him according to his word, but instead they took it. And the very thing that was a sign of their salvation and God's love for them and his cherishing of them and his saving them and his bringing them into him in a way that they could exist in peace, um, they used to, to slight him and to slap him in the face. And guys, it's the same with us. I don't wanna let any of us, and I include myself right in the center, to get away with thinking this was them and not us. This is our story. God gives us good gifts. They are good. Every good gift is from the Father of Lights, James 1. Every good thing, the air we breathe, the sun, money in the bank, bread in our mouths, children, sex in a, in a, in a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman, um, everything, everything he made is good. It's all from him, it's good. But when we make those things ultimate things, ultimate things that we allow to identify us and give our hearts to, we're doing the same thing. We're doing the exact same thing. We're paying God lip service and saying, yes, I'm a Christ follower, but we're actually letting those things identify us. Um, we're letting those things, they're our functional saviors. They're functionally securing us and, fat, and satisfying us. Um, so God, to say the same thing, sort of more specifically, he gives us, God gives us gifts meant to lead, just like the gold was meant to lead to God worship. Look how great your salvation to a tabernacle where they could come and be at peace with him through sacrifice. God gives us good gifts meant to lead us to worship him. How is that? Because things are supposed to be arrows. They're supposed to be. When our hearts work right, God gives us good gifts that are supposed to be, thank you, Lord, so much. I'm not looking to that to identify me, but I am saying, you gave that to me, thank you. I worship you. But so often, so often, these things like, let me just list a few, bank accounts, homes, relationships, people in our lives, 
that we look to to tell us who we are. Jobs, athleticism, good looks, education, I could go on. That's just a few. We end up worshiping those things and saying, I'm gonna run after that and that's functionally what identifies me. And how do we know it is? Because imagine that, if that thing's taken away from you, if you can't imagine life without that thing, it's probably an idol. Um, not that it won't hurt, that's normal. Those, if those things are taken away from us, they hurt, but if it devastates you, not just disappoints, but you can't get over it, you're crushed. You have no, no more reason for living. It's an idol, it's a functional idol, it's what we're worshiping. We're doing the same thing. None of us have golden calves, but this text still preaches, you see? It wasn't the calf they were worshiping. It was something they could weigh. And we do the same thing, Lord. Um, why do we do this? Why did Israel? Because she was scared. She couldn't see Moses. He, they disip, Moses disappeared on the mountain. He was gone for 40 days, and they got scared. They needed something they could weigh, like money in the bank account or a person in front of us. Um, they didn't dwell on God's past faithfulness. They didn't remember. Um, they didn't remember what he'd done. So when we look at our circumstances and the culture around us, more than going back to God's word and saying, this is your faithfulness, this is what you've done, hearing your word, this is bedrock. Regardless of where Moses is, we do the same thing. The second thing they did is they didn't remember God's faithfulness, not only his word, but his faithfulness in their lives. Remembering, that's one of the reasons we tell testimonies here in our, in our neighborhood parishes when we gather with one another when we're one-on-one in our families, biological families, here on Sunday, oftentimes, and we wanna do that more and more, telling stories about here's how God's been faithful, letting that be a normal part of how we talk. Look at what God did yesterday or last week or the month before. Um, They forgot about and weren't telling the story of God's faithfulness. Um, And so when we do that, we go to the same place. Um, They also, another reason they they did this, they reverted to what they knew. so do you ever wonder why a calf? It just seems so strange. Like, why, why a cow? Why a baby cow? Um, 400, don't forget, they were four centuries long in Egypt. That's like Jamestown to now for us, 1603 to present day. Four centuries, okay? Um, they were in Egypt as slaves, and the, and the calf, the cow, was a common, act, a common object, excuse me, of worship in the ancient Near East at that time. Um, so in, in a sense... The culture won out over the invisible but faithful and manifest in many ways through the plagues, through his deliverance, through being on the mountain in fire, over the faithful God. So the culture and what they were used to and what the culture had told them for so long won out over what God was telling telling them and doing. What does our culture tell us to trust? What is our golden calf in that sense? It's money. It's a lot of the same stuff I mentioned. But to help us out, it's money and guilty, by the way. It's comfort, it's good, it's good looks, it's power, this is the, it's intelligence, it's education, I could go on. These are the things that our culture says, run after these things, this is what to have, this is what will identify you, this is what will secure you. So these things are often our functional saviors. These are our golden calves. And, the, and the, here's the kicker, the Israelites were convinced before moving to quick point two, which is shorter, these were the things that the Israelites were convinced, um, excuse me, they were convinced in doing this, in worshiping the golden calf. They were convinced they were being faithful. Um, they called this in verse five, quote, a feast to the Lord. And I use the name Yahweh, the name the Jews won't pronounce. They say Adonai. It's the covenant name of God that God gave to Moses in Exodus three. They say, we're having a feast to Yahweh. We just need to see something here. And we do the same thing. 
we spin the same narrative, worshiping what the Lord does, running after these things, putting, giving our hearts to these things, um, and trusting our happiness to them while saying all along, yeah, I'm a Christ follower. Um, so that's, that's the first point. We worship what we can weigh. Secondly, we become like what we worship. This is, one of the, this is probably the most interesting point to me. We become like what we worship. Check this out, Psalm 115. Why, this is Psalm 115. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols, the nations, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. This is the line right here. Listen to this. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Verse 9 of Exodus 32, which you missed because we didn't read it, which is fine. We gave Sarah the text and it was perfect, but that was a long chapter. Verse 9 says this. If you have your Bibles, look down at them or on the screen. Verse 9 of our text says this. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. You ever ask yourself, first of all, why a cow? Why a baby? Why a calf? And secondly, why, why stiff-necked? Why is he saying stiff-necked here? Well, what are they worshiping? They're worshiping a calf. Have you ever, friend, uh, hand, tried to handle or wrestle a calf? Have you gone to the rodeo? Let me, that, this will hit everybody. Have you gone to the rodeo and seen, we literally have an event where the dude jumps off his horse and grabs the calf by the neck, and how much force? You got Bubba, he's 300 pounds, and he does this professionally, practices all day long for this, and it's still, a lot of times, so hard. You put all your weight onto it, and their neck, it looks like it's gonna snap off. And those calves, they get up just fine. And it takes everything that Bubba has to get that thing down on the ground and then put the, put the lariat around his feet. Calves are stiff-necked. They are not, they, are, they will not go where you tell them to go very easily. They are stubborn creatures. So what is happening here? They are becoming quickly, with the quickness of the rebellion, just like what they're going after, just like the calf. They're becoming like this thing. Um, this isn't some magic or some spiritual or Bible thing. It's an everyday principle. We become like what we gaze at. Let me give you a few examples. A few examples. My mentor, one of my mentors, um, uh, he had a brother. He's a man of the cloth and a professor. He had a brother, though, who was, this, I think, the CFO of Marriott. Big wig, made millions every year. Um, and the first question, they were not close to my mentor's chagrin. The first question his brother asked him every time he came in the door, is usually on a holiday, and he saw his brother, was, how much did you make this year? He worshiped money. And my Mentor said this. He said, my bro- I could see my brother becoming papery, thin. C.S. Lewis uses the word tinny in a different context. Tinny, like money. It, 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 it stiffened him up and hollowed him out. He was becoming like what he was worshiping and gazing at for his validation and self-worth. I mean, I could go, I'll give you a few more examples there. It works with everything. But you think about someone who worships sex. Um, you become, we use the word sleazy. That person's oily. Um, you become like what your sex is good within the confines that God's given it to us. It's not something to identify yourself by and to, and to say, at all costs, I will have this. When that happens, that person becomes like what they're devoting themselves to. Um, fame, you're looking for other people to tell you you're awesome. So you have to put up this image and you become 
two-dimensionalized, sort of flat um, and hollow and smiley and false. Um, you worship books, you become dry, um, where you're just almost just words and nothing else, like paper. Um, intelligence, you become proud. Um, maybe one more. You worship men's opinion. You become like those men and captive to those men or women that you're seeking their validation. So C.S. Lewis says this in The Great Divorce. He says of a woman, she ceased to become a grumbler. She grumbled a lot. But at some point, she ceased to be a grumbler and just became a grumble. Eventually, that sin identifies you and owns you. It comes to destroy it can't just be managed. That's how all sin starts. We try to manage it. It's, I'm gonna keep the coin over here while the, while the room is being swept and everything's gonna be okay and I'm gonna manage it. It ends up dominating you and devouring you. What did, what did in the early part of the Bible, Genesis 4, what did God say to Cain? Sin is crouching at your door and it is waiting to devour you. That's what sin does if it's not what? Cut out by the great surgeon and destroyed. If it's not crucified, um, and, and conversely, before getting to point three, what did God make us for? He's a father loving us as children, giving us the way to live because he wants us to prosper. If we look at him, if we gaze at God, we become like him. And what did he make us for? To be image bearers. He made us alone of all his creation, not the angels, as his imago Dei, his image and so when we gaze at him, we become most truly what we are made to be. We find the meaning of life, and we become beautiful. Um, so three, three, false worship is a sickness unto death, and we're all infected. Notice, um, so it affects us all. It will ruin and destroy us all. Notice what God says to Moses in verse 7. Um, and again, we didn't read this verse. We cut off at verse 6. But in verse 7, he says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down. Moses is up on the mountain. He says, go down for your, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Notice what Moses, two things, what he does not say. Moses, uh, God does not say to Moses, the people are in trouble or even the people have sinned and disobeyed me. Rather, God says that the people have, quote, corrupted themselves. The word corrupted here means to ruin or destroy. They have bowed down to a false God and they, what does God say? What's the diagnosis? They're done. They're destroyed. They're totally corrupted. A rotten egg in batter ruins the cake, the whole thing. Sugar in a gas tank ruins the engine. Snake poison in a man's bloodstream ruins the man. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. It's deadly. The corrupted entity is destroyed. And here's the principle. All sin is idolatry, worship of something that's good but not God, or stems from idolatry, and idolatry ruins us, body and soul, um, because we were made for God. So worshiping other things is sugar in the gas tank, a bad egg in the batter, poison in the bloodstream. Eventually, we will lock up, stop running, and die. And my friends, that's some of what eternity without God is. It's also his just wrath against our sin for stealing his glory and going our own way. It is also that, yes, but it is we just cease to run and to work. We break down. We break down forever. We are eternally peeled or unraveled. And yet when we're gods, the opposite happens. We're remade. We're restored. We become real, like Pinocchio. He becomes a real boy, heavy, substantial. Um, 
God hates this because he loves us. Don't forget that. He hates this because he loves us. Second thing to note in verse seven, look back at the language. Go down for your people whom you brought up to Moses. Does that strike you as strange? I thought God called Israel, quote, my treasured possession, my people, and even in Exodus four, my son. He had. And I thought God was the one who brought them out of Egypt. He did. But now he's distancing himself from his people. See that? He's disowning them. And that is hard. But it's right, it's just, and it's logical. How can God have a people for himself that won't have him? He loves them, but they will not love him in return. And any relationship has to be a two-way street. We know that this is deeper than just the wrong choices of the Israelites because we are given a few clues. In verse 1, it says, When the people saw... In verse 1 of chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses was gone, that's the same sort of language. So their eyes, what they saw, what they weighed, uh, what they didn't see, led them to break God's command. It's a verbal echo. Moses wrote Exodus, right? He also wrote Genesis. It's a verbal echo. Moses is purposefully saying, go back to the garden. Go back to Genesis 3. When Eve, what? Genesis 3 verse 6, saw not listen to God's word, as Paul preached in a beautiful sermon a few weeks ago. Not listen to God's word and then saw God through the ear, but saw what her eyes were showing her, what she could weigh, what was in her bank account, what was going, the turmoil going on around her. When she saw the fruit and how beautiful it was, contrary to God's word, she was seduced. Does not the same thing happen to us? Um, so Moses is saying this is a consequence of the fact that humanity has been ruined by the fall, and Israel is not going to bring salvation to the nations, and she cannot do this on her own. This is a theological freight of what Moses is saying here. Um, and, and we see this too, starting in verse 21, Moses questions the complicit Aaron, and Aaron refuses responsibility. Hey, I th- what does he say? It's one of those, com- it's comedy in the midst of this extremely dark and hard passage. Moses, Aaron's, what's, how, what does he say? They told, first of all, he blames the people, just like Adam and Eve, they blame anything but themselves. They don't take responsibility. He's like, the people told me, you know how stubborn they are, Moses. And besides, I threw in the gold and out popped. Literally says, and out popped this calf. Yeah, we do the same thing and Adam and Eve did the same thing. Okay, that's what sin does. You push away responsibility instead of taking the first step back to God when he questions you, what have you done? You say, I've sinned. I need a savior. I can't do it. That's the first step back to God. But we're seeing here that this is deeper. This is something Israel can't, can't, um, can't fix. And lastly, we need a mediator, point four. We need a mediator. This is clearly the role, the role that Moses plays in this episode here. He, he saves God's people from destruction. God is ready to wipe the slate totally clean, to turn over the dish and to start new with Moses. I can do anything I want. I'll start new with you, Moses. Get out of my way. The people deserve it. Moses steps in the way and he's like, no, no. And what does he do? What does he do? Um, He jumps between the people and God and he says some astounding things. First thing, he reminds God of his great acts and promises. He doesn't say the people are awesome and I'm awesome and we're not that bad. He doesn't say that. He says, God, remember how faithful you are and what you said you would do and what you've already done and the promises that you've given. And the second thing he does is something almost incredible. I don't know if you caught it. Sarah read it. He says to God, if necessary, 
take me in their place. Blot me out of your book if that's what it takes. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm willing to be eternally undone if it means that you'll save them. There's this amazing scene in Broke Down Palace by Claire Danes, old movie, it's like 90s. Um, it's at the end, and I'm not getting you all the details other than to say it's Claire Danes and a girl. She's also a famous actress. They're in East Asia somewhere, I think it's Thailand, and they're just two white girls, two Americans, uh, not savvy at all, that go to Thailand and break some laws. They bring in, I think, actually, forget about it. You're not going to get the details. They have drugs. I think the drugs were put on them, but her friend is the complicit one. Her friend has actually been in cahoots with the drug dealer. And Claire Danes is totally innocent. At the end of the movie, they're before a magistrate, and the magistrate is going to keep the guilty girl, her friend, there, because she deserves to be there, and she's going to stay in prison for goodness knows how long, maybe forever, and just rot there. She doesn't have rights. She's guilty. This is amazing. I cannot watch this scene without crying like a child. She, Claire Danes runs out in front of the magistrate and just falls down and says, take me take me. And they actually take her. He's like, fine. And they take her away and just pull her into the, and the last scene is her looking through the gate as her friend goes, gets in a car, her, a car her dad's provider, dad's real powerful, and drives off with her lawyer. And she's just, she's just locked up. Innocent, but takes the place of the guilty. And this is what, um, this is what Moses is willing to do, but God says, no, Moses. But he relents from his anger. But we need a mediator. Moses pictures for us the mediator we need, and Jesus steps on the scene, and he is that mediator. He is the one who steps in, comes down from heaven, and takes our place. All the law-keeping that we should have kept but haven't done, that Israel should have kept and hasn't done, he keeps from the heart perfectly. He earns life as a man. He deserves it, to be at peace with God. And then on the cross... He says, take me instead of them. Not deserving to die. He takes your place. He takes my place if you trust in him. Um, Take me, not them. And God says, unlike with Moses, God says to Jesus, okay. Do you know that Jesus endured hell for you? I don't know how. I don't know how in that mystery it happened. No theologian can tell you, but the scriptures are clear. Jesus Christ paid, if you've looked to him as your Lord and Savior, he paid for every sin you ever have committed or will commit. He tasted those. He became those because God is just. Not a single sin went unpaid for. And he endured the eternity of hell, the wrath of God, and the being undone that you would have in this life and the next for you. God said, okay. Um, Isaiah 53, everyone has gone his own way. That's all of us, God. Not, guys, not just Israelites at the golden calf. Um, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and by his stripes we are healed. The salvation offered us in Christ, guys, is not based on your performance. Hey, God, uh, Israel and I, we're okay. The sin's not that bad. That's not what Moses does. He says, you're faithful, God. Your word is faithful. When we look to Jesus, that's exactly what we're saying. It's his faithfulness. It's his life in your place. It's his death in your, death in your place. That's what faith in Christ means. It means saying you're faithful and you've shown us that in Jesus Christ, Lord. Um, 
How can you tell if you're like Moses, a God-gazer, a God-worshipper, one of God's own? One, just a couple quick diagnostics. Do you get mad at what God gets mad at? Notice Moses, as Sarah read, when he comes down and sees what God's told him is happening, he throws the tablets down, breaks them, pulverizes them, and makes the, he puts them in water and makes the people drink. It's insane. He gets furious because he sees how the people are hurting themselves and separating them from God. He sees how God's getting robbed of his just glory, the glory, glory he duly deserves. Does injustice, and part of injustice is God not getting his glory in Christ. Does it, does it make you furious? Does it make you jealous for him? Does it hurt you when you see people going off into sin? When you see yourself doing something that hurts God's heart, do you break? This is, this is a sign that you're God's. And if not, ask for it. Ask for it. Two, two, do you react like Moses does here? What does he do? He starts pleading for their souls. Or do we not care enough about people to, um, to plead with God for their souls, to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ? Um, Moses steps in between God and the people and says, take me instead. Jesus went from heaven to earth and endured the wrath of God for us. Can we risk not being liked or being um, laughed at or scoffed or even written off? Or are we too afraid of that? Do we not love people enough? Um, or are we just maybe too busy? Maybe are we just too busy? I, I confess that I'm often guilty of both of those things. And I just, I'm not looking for an admission of guilt. I'm looking for sorrow that leads to repentance as a people says, we have all we need in Christ. Give us your heart, Lord. Give us the heart of Moses. Give us the heart of Christ to be a people who love people enough to have our hearts break for them, to cry out to God for them in prayer, and to go across the street and to share the only news that saves with them. To get involved enough in people's lives to earn that right even. Um, I'm going to finish with a story. I have a friend now. <laughs> he was more of an acquaintance. Um, until this week, I was at Whole Foods and I was working and having lunch with someone and he's older, he's like 10 years older. I'm just not a millennial, like I'm right on the edge and I'm not technically a millennial. Um, but I, I do, I wear, I don't know, I, I have Apple stuff and I work at Whole Foods um, on my laptop. You know, I do things, I do millennial things. He commented though, he's like, uh, yeah, I, he's a real estate broker and he's older and he's normally in the office or driving around town selling properties or looking at properties. But he was with his laptop working in Whole Foods. And he had actually, this is why he said that, he had actually the Apple wireless um, earbuds in. And he's like, yeah, I'm totally playing the millennial thing today, man. And uh, he's like, I've been, I love these things. I've been resisting buying them for years. They're so expensive. And, uh, but I finally, I think he said I got them for my birthday a month ago, and I love them. I can take calls on them. I can listen to stuff. I can work out with them. He was so excited about them, and he's like, see you later, see you later. An hour later, my lunch had finished, and I was working again, and he comes over, and he just, he put them in their case, and he just slides the case toward me. He's like, they're yours. I was like, what? And like, tears started. I was like, no, no, dude, I know how expensive these are. Like, no, I'm not taking these. And he's like, take them. He's like, take them. I appreciate what you do. It's my, it's my privilege. And I was like, dude, are you sure? And then he's like, absolutely. And he left. He's like, as long as you don't buy my ear fuzz. I've had them for a month, you know? And um, <laughs> so every time, he's like, pray for me, though. When you, when, you, when you use them, think about me. Pray for me. 
And I started, he left, and I started crying. And, um, I mean, what a costly gift, you know, especially how much, how long he'd waited for them and how he'd gotten them and how briefly he'd had them. Um, and I started thinking about it, this precious and costly gift that he gave me. What if, um, what if I had said thank you, put them in my briefcase, and just never used them? What an insult. What an insult to this guy. And I just, I know, so, so from wireless iBuds to, to the gospel, but literally it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, when, how much more precious and costly is the gift of God's only son and his only son leaving all privileges in heaven, coming down to earth and sacrificing everything and during our hell? How much more costly? And to just put them put the case in the briefcase and say, never going to use it. I'm never going to open that gift. I'm never going to look to Jesus as my savior. I'm never going to say, this is how much you love me, father. This is how you moved heaven and earth to come get me. You did everything. And yet I'm not going to use it. I'm going to walk away either by running in, running after other idols, other things that I'm sure were going to satisfy me this time, even though they haven't the past thousand or by trying to be good enough. Both of those things are closing the iPad case, putting in the briefcase and just saying, I don't need, no, I'm not gonna open that gift. The gift of Christ is that he has done everything to bring you back in a relationship with a father who loves you. Will you open it and use them? Using Christ, using the gift is to put, put all of yourself on him and say, you've done everything. To live is to live in you, to believe on you, to run to you when I sin, to repent knowing I have an advocate before the father, to give you my heart, to confess when I'm going after idols and say, Lord, bring me back. You haven't died for part of me. You've died for 100% of me and for all of us. To give all of ourselves to him is to use the gift. And friends, if you're a Christian, remember 1 Corinthians 10. Do not think you're off the hook. It is so easy to use the, eye, to use the earphones every now and again. Man, if I used them like once a month, that too would dishonor him. Every time I use them, I see his name and I think about him and I use them as much as I can. And every time I do, I'm so thankful for him and I pray for him. As Christians, we can pay lip service. We can come and worship on a Sunday. But have we given all of our hearts to him? Have, do we, are we in a constant state of repentance, saying, Lord, scrape the idols away. Crucify every falseness in me. Um, and make my soul affection for you, knowing that it is you who satisfy in you alone. Um, may we be that kind of people. May we be a people who press into his word, a people of prayer, um, a people who believe that he is good and that he has given himself for us to satisfy us and that, and that share that word with a, with a, um, a, lost, a lost people around us. Let's, let's pray. Father, you've given us something so much more precious than wireless earphones. And that was so impactful to me, how costly that was to him. You gave us your own son, who almost unbelievably, Isaiah says in chapter 53, you were, pleased, you were pleased to crush that we might be brought in and be given peace and be brought back into relationship with you. Something Adam and Eve failed to do, something Israel failed to do, something we failed to do, but Jesus did it. And we cast ourselves wholly on him now by faith. Anyone who's on the edges, Lord, bring them in. And I pray that they would know that this is a safe place to press in, to ask honest questions. Lord, bring us to Jesus. In his name, amen.